From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. This is your news for Monday, December 19th. Protesters from Salt Lake City to Washington, D.C. earlier this month demanded that U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack revoke a permit for the proposed Uinta Basin Railway. Reporter Amy Haddon-Marsh was in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, and found out how a Utah train would impact communities there and beyond. The whole reason we're here is to call attention, to bring attention, to put attention on Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. He works for President Biden. He oversees the Forest Service. He could revoke the permit for the Uinta Railway. Will Hodges is a volunteer organizer with 350 Colorado, part of the Halt the Harm network that organized rallies across the country earlier this month against the proposed Uinta Basin Railway. U.S. Forest Service officials in Utah approved a permit in July for 12 miles of the railway to cut through an inventoried roadless area in the Ashley National Forest. The approval is in place, but the actual permit has not been issued. Litigation is pending. Hodges said Vilsack has the authority to revoke the permit. So we could stop this railway, and then they can't get as much oil out of the Uinta Basin, which is a start for addressing our climate crisis. Close to 70 people showed up on Saturday, December 10th in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, to oppose the train. Up to 10 oil trains a day, with 110 heated tanker cars each, capable of carrying 642 barrels of crude per car, would travel the National Railway through Colorado, including Glenwood Springs and the Glenwood Canyon. Leslie Robinson, Rifle, Colorado. I'm here because I'm against the waxy oil train going down the Colorado River from our Utah border down to Denver. There's just too many things that can happen in between those two points. Uh, Dave Reed, Carbondale. It's, it's important. It's a really alarming proposal. What's alarming about it to you? Well, you know, we're in this weird time. It's the last gasp of the fossil fuel age. Even as we know that we need to be reducing our emissions and our fossil fuel use, the special interests are advancing ever more wackadoodle, dirty schemes to prop up their industry. Oil producers want to quadruple the amount of fracked waxy crude that comes out of Utah's Uinta Basin. Between 80,000 and 90,000 barrels per day are now trucked to refineries in Salt Lake City. But air pollution on the Wasatch Front has forced refineries there to cap production. So Utah officials and energy companies have pinned their hopes on the 88-mile Uinta Basin Railway, or UBR, which would link the basin's oil fields to the national rail system and refineries in Oklahoma and along the Gulf Coast. And that wall to get to those facilities has to pass through highly populated areas and communities composed of people who are economically disadvantaged, who are black, indigenous, and people of color. That's John Beard, founder, president, and executive director of the Port Arthur Community Action Network. Beard lives in Port Arthur, Texas, home of refineries operated by Valero, Total, Chevron, and Motiva, the nation's largest oil refinery. 
He joined a recent Halt the Harm webinar to talk about how an additional 350,000 barrels of Utah waxy crude would impact his community. It's going to increase pollution. It's going to increase flaring. It's going to increase all of those byproducts that you have from the petrochemical industry, which has made this area a borderline non-attainment area for air quality. We have some of the worst air in southeast Texas, if not the United States. And that's manifesting itself not only in the respiratory illnesses and diseases that people have, but we're also a cancer cluster. Conservation groups, including the Center for Biological Diversity, also filed a lawsuit in February appealing the approval by the Federal Surface Transportation Board, a federal regulating agency. The groups claim the FSTB ignored climate change impacts, including air pollution from increased oil drilling in the Uinta Basin, and more greenhouse gas emissions from burning gasoline refined from Utah crude. Eagle County, on the east end of the Glenwood Canyon, also filed suit, adding concerns of reviving the Tennessee Pass rail line as a potential haul route. Then, last summer, five counties and five towns along the national rail line through Colorado signed an amicus brief in support of Eagle County. They claim, among other things, that the FSTB ignored Colorado when analyzing the impacts of the UBR. At the rally, Will Hodges pointed to the Transportation Board's environmental analysis, which predicted accidents along the railroad. One fact that I learned this week the Surface Transportation Board regulates railroads in this country. In their environmental impact statement that they issued in granting the permit to the railway, they expect one accident every two years. They expect one accident every two years. Based on Paula Stepp, Glenwood Springs City Councilwoman and Executive Director of the local nonprofit Middle Colorado Watershed Council, said damage from a derailment in the Glenwood Canyon would be overwhelming. People say we need the oil economy, it helps drive uh, a lot of our other economies, but you also have to look at the cost of the oil economy, and this is where the cost would be to us with any kind of derailment. Most of the attendees at the Glenwood Springs rally came out to protest the UBR because of climate change impacts and threats to Glenwood Canyon. But Will Hodges said he also wants to fight societal resignation and apathy. Detractors are going to say our whole economy runs on oil. And yes, that's the problem. And we need a World War II scale mobilization uh, from the federal government, the states and localities to greatly wind down our dependence on fossil fuels. Reporting for KZMU, I'm Amy Haddon-Marsh in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. The Colorado River is in crisis. 40 million people depend on its water, and the supply is shrinking due to climate change. Policymakers met in Las Vegas last week to discuss its future, but didn't emerge with any new commitments to significantly cut back demand. That leaves hydropower facilities in jeopardy at the nation's largest reservoirs and a murky picture of the river's future. Alex Hager, with our partners at KUNC, was there. There's no shortage of tension in the Colorado River Basin. The cities and farms that rely on the river's water need to start using less. And those who decide how it gets divvied up are caught in a standoff. In a Las Vegas casino conference center, that all went down in person. There's no substitute for you know being face to face. It's it's a lot easier to 
talk, talk a little smack, call some people some names, you know, when, when you're not looking them in the eye. That's John Ensminger, head of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. Here at Caesars Palace, people from Wyoming to Mexico are gathered to get a sense of the river's future. And the word on everyone's lips is collaboration. Colorado's head river negotiator, Becky Mitchell, says there needs to be a collective solution to this collective problem. I think there is some heavy optimism that hopefully everyone will come to something that we can all agree on. But it is going to take mean real cuts to everyone. Agreement is easier said than done. Mitchell herself placed blame downstream. States along the river's top half, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico, say their water supply is at the whims of rain and snow, while the lower half can rely on steady, legally required deliveries every year. So Mitchell says those lower states should be the first to make cutbacks. We all have to be able to sell this, and it is really hard to sell something when there are winners and losers. Meanwhile, the lower basin has its own big water demands in cities like Phoenix and Los Angeles, but also sprawling fields of crops. About 80% of the country's wintertime vegetables come from farms in the lower basin. Water managers say the next few weeks will be critical. They're trying to add their two cents before the federal government makes some potential changes to the river's current rulebook. Bill Hazenkamp is with the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. We really are focusing on this 45 days, and then if we're not successful, then you can ask me where we're headed then, because that's something I don't want to think about right now. But water managers will have to think about it, and soon. Elizabeth Koboli is a political science professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. Where dealing with trying to respond to crisis while also thinking about long-term sustainability planning for the basin. And to me, that is creating so many challenges. Koboli says there isn't much new clarity on where necessary cutbacks to water use will come from. Even though we agree, yeah, this is a problem and we need to do something about it and it's not getting better, um, we haven't yet agreed on who's really responsible for doing any of that yet. A longer-term plan could come by 2026, when the current rules for managing the river are set to expire. And while that process is just beginning, groups historically excluded from river management want their voices to be heard. We want to have true and meaningful consultation. We want to really have nation-to-nation, but it really doesn't exist. Sean Chapoose is chairman of the Ute Indian Tribe on the Uinta and Uray Reservation. He and many of the other 30 tribes in the basin say they want more out of states that promise them a seat at the table. It sounds good in rooms, but what happens on the ground, and for a person like me who's actually in that rumble, I always tell people, yeah, you're, 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 you're singing a narrative that's not factual. And while that negotiating table is being set, the river itself is only getting drier, putting the pressure on everyone who relies on its water to adapt. In Las Vegas, I'm Alex Hager. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. And that's the KZMU News for Monday, December 19th. Get your community-powered journalism Monday through Friday at noon and 7. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.